Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 52. It'll be mostly chapter 53, but there's a few verses at the beginning, I'm sorry, at the end of Isaiah 52, which are really the, the beginning of that text, that section. When Jesus appeared alive to his apostles, what essential truths did he communicate to them? What did he think were the essential truths to communicate to them as he appeared to them in in the flesh, risen from the dead? There's so many things he could have taken the time to explain had he so desired. Did he describe his existence as a disembodied human soul from Friday until Sunday? Did he tell them what that was like? That would have been fascinating, but we have no record of such a conversation. So, Scripture is silent one way or the other. But what does Scripture tell us that he told his disciples? Well, Scripture does tell us what his main focus was at the time, aside from simply proving that he had a resurrected flesh and bone body, right? He went to great lengths to open their minds to the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Rather than simply stressing their need to believe in the bare fact of his death and resurrection, Jesus stressed the necessity of such a death and such a resurrection on the authority of the Old Testament. Once they they saw and knew that, yes, he died, but he'd risen from the dead bodily, That wasn't all they needed to understand. They still didn't connect the dots from Scripture until Jesus did it for them. And that was his great emphasis in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension to heaven. You have to understand how this didn't just happen. This is what had to happen as God told you in the Scriptures. This was God's plan, his great plan of redemption. Why was it necessary that he die and rise again? Well, because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. What was the significance of this death and resurrection? Well, the scriptures had already declared the significance. So, before we get to Isaiah, let's read how Luke puts this in the last chapter of his gospel. Jesus has now appeared on Sunday night to a group of disciples who were hiding in an upper room because they were still afraid of the same Jewish authorities who pushed for Jesus' death. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, as he's now in the upper room and he's already proven he's real, he's in the flesh. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus says that his suffering and death, and his resurrection on the third day, and the worldwide proclamation of his gospel were all predicted throughout the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. 
And it's not just the original disciples who needed to be convinced of this. You need to be convinced of this. If this is all going to make sense the way God meant it to. If this is going to impact you the way it ought to. So today we'll focus on the resurrection as promised in the prophet Isaiah. Jesus' resurrection, again, was not simply a remarkable supernatural event, though it was that. You could say the most remarkable, the most supernatural event in history, aside from creation itself. Jesus' resurrection happened because the Lord God of the prophets said it had to happen. And he said why it had to happen, too. So now, I trust you're in Isaiah 52. Uh, just a brief introduction to Isaiah 52:13 through the rest of chapter 53. Uh, Edward Young, in his commentaries, um, is talking about how this is part of the servant songs. The songs about the servant of Yahweh, servant of the Lord, who would come as the anointed one, the Messiah. He says it's God who introduces and identifies the servant who belongs to God and serves him. In 42, 1-4, Isaiah had already presented him as one with a mission. In 49, 1-7, he, he had again been presented. But this time there are great difficulties in the execution of his work. In 50, verses 4-9, through the servant himself had spoken, mentioning the suffering that he was to face. That's where we have the text, how they plucked out his beard, he faced shame and spitting, and so on. Yet no reason was given for this suffering, for it is reserved for the present passage to tell why the servant must undergo severe suffering and degradation. So there's this, this mysterious figure who keeps popping up in this section of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. He's the one anointed with the Holy Spirit in all his fullness. Messiah means the anointed one, remember. He's the anointed one. He's the one who will bring all God's redemptive purposes to pass. But he's going to suffer? He's supposed to be victorious. Well, here we get to the heart of Isaiah's prophecy of the servant of the Lord. Verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, the Lord speaking, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Let's pause there. And, and by the way, we're beginning the first point of a simple two-point message. First point, first point from Isaiah being the servant's atoning death. The servant's atoning death. I think we're more familiar with chapter 53, but this is really the beginning of that text. But what is this talking about? Well, there's this, this idea of people being astonished at the Messiah. First of all, because he's, he's beaten beyond almost looking human. <laughs> he's on public display in shame. And many will be astonished at him in that condition. But in, but in and because of that shame and that suffering, so shall he sprinkle many nations. 
and kings, even the highest of people, will have nothing left to say in their awe at him in the end. When he's glorified, they'll shut their mouths. Because what has not been told them they see, that which they've not heard they understand. And so the, the key here in this opening section is, so shall he sprinkle many nations. What is that talking about? Well, that word for sprinkle is, is sort of a, a special word, a technical word in the Old Testament. Um, found throughout the law of Moses, you might find the sprinkling of oil or water or blood. But it's always as a cleansing or purifying ceremony. It's a priestly thing. Uh, you, where either water or blood often is sprinkled on a person or on a thing to say now it's pure, now it's cleansed, it's clean. Uh, Leviticus 14.7 He shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times. Leviticus 4, verse six. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. Or Leviticus 8.11 he sprinkled thereof upon the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all his vessels, both the laver and his foot, to sanctify them, etc. So it's, it's a priestly work here that's being talked about to bring purification and cleansing to others. But as we'll see, as, as we go into Isaiah 53, it's ironic because the people who are gazing in astonishment at the servant of the Lord, they think he's the impure one. They think the Messiah is the one under God's curse who needs cleansing. But the Messiah will end up being the one who cleanses others through his own death. And he does this as a sufferer. So the, this priestly work of Christ is often spoken of elsewhere as sprinkling. Sprinkling with water or sprinkling with blood. Ezekiel 36 verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Or First Peter 1, uh, he addresses those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Or Hebrews 10, verse 22 says that now as we uh, have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, now we have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That's where, of course, we get the famous words of the hymn, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. This work of cleansing is spoken of as sprinkling many nations. So now we're ready for the rest of the text, which picks up in verse 1 of chapter 53. Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who would believe this storyline that's going to unfold? Verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant, 
and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Meaning, we, especially Jesus' fellow Jews, they largely thought he was bearing his own griefs and sorrows, which he deserved. God was smiting him because he was a blasphemer. But it was actually, they realized later, it was actually our griefs and our sorrows that he bore. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was not the servant of the Lord who had gone astray. He, as Isaiah emphasizes over and over, was perfectly obedient to the Lord. He carried out exactly what his mission was from the Lord. He never once sinned, but we're the ones who had gone astray, like sheep who scatter every direction they can <laughs> without a shepherd. And so he, the Lamb of God, takes the punishment which we, the wayward sheep, deserve. Verse 7 He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He just took it without saying a word unless he had to. But he didn't, he didn't protest this treatment, this unjust treatment. He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who considered that he was cut off, wording, wording of death? As far as the Jewish leadership were, were concerned, he'd been nailed to a cross. He'd breathed his last, and that was the end. He could be safely forgotten now. Who considered his death? He was over and done with in the eyes of the powerful of this world. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. I trust you're familiar from the gospel accounts with how this played out. He made his grave with the wicked. Jesus was crucified between two violent criminals, robbers, maybe insurrectionists, who deserved everything they got on those crosses. As one of them confessed, we saw Friday night. He made his grave with the wicked. He was in the company of truly wicked people in his death. And he was with a rich man in his death. A rich man, a ruler of the Jews named Joseph of Arimathea, took Jesus down from the cross, placed him in his own new family tomb. But he made his grave with the wicked, even though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
this was the plan, that God crush his own holy servant who had done no wrong. He has put him to grief. It wasn't just the wicked putting the Messiah to grief. It was the Lord himself bringing down his hammer of justice. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, using that language of the Old Testament sacrificial system, when symbolically an animal, a sacrificial animal, would take the place of the worshiper who had sinned and would be slaughtered. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, he will justify many people before God. Some take that as by them knowing him, the Messiah, or or by perhaps the Messiah's knowledge, he will know how to justify these people. And he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The servant's atoning death. No wonder Philip the Evangelist could preach Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch who had just been reading Isaiah 53. And the man says, who is Isaiah writing about? Is he writing about himself, something he experienced, or about someone else? What is going on here? And Philip says, let me tell you about Jesus. Peter, the Apostle Peter, obviously got this as well. Because listen to how he borrows even the very words from Isaiah 53 in his own letter. 1 Peter 2, verses 22 through 25. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We talked even more Friday night, remembering the cross, about Jesus' substitutionary atonement. The servant's death was one of substitutionary atonement. Atoning for sins that were not his, and not just atoning for one or two other people who were sinners, atoning for many. And that's the foundation for the next astounding point in the text. And that is the servant's life after death. The servant's life after death. Go back to verse 8 in Isaiah 53 and look carefully here. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And here we go. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he's dead, right? And that's it. He's gone. No. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Old Testament wording for long life on this earth, uh, in the body. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He doesn't die and leave God's mission of redemption to someone else to carry out. It's in his hand, now that he prolongs his days after death, that the will of the Lord will prosper. He has victory in a resurrected life. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He'll be there to see the results of his death. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's there to share in the victory spoils. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, there's one part of this that will require a little harder work to understand, I, I think. But it will be worth it. It says he shall see his offspring. What does that mean? Isaiah 53 is pretty familiar to many of us. Have you thought about that statement? Christ shall see his offspring. What is it talking about? Well, there is a theme of offspring or seed in Isaiah. And, of course, if you've been listening in our Genesis series regularly on Sunday mornings, you know it's elsewhere in Scripture, too. (laughs) But Isaiah picks it up in a unique way here. A seed or an offspring, which God promised to give Israel. But it's offspring that would far surpass the ethnic descendants of Israel. It's a spiritual offspring who would call themselves by the name of Israel and Israel's God. After exile, after judgment for breaking covenant with God, Israel would seemingly out of nowhere have offspring everywhere. Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 5. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They, your offspring, shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Then there's Isaiah 49, verse 5, where the Messiah himself is speaking. Christ says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant and to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. A little further down, verse 19 of that text. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, 
The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has who brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. And the next place, need to see this, the next place to go is the next three verses after Isaiah 53. It's Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations, that is, the Gentiles, and will people the desolate cities. And you know where that text gets quoted in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul quotes it. Galatians 4, verses 26 to 27. And he says it's fulfilled in the New Testament church. He's contrasting the heavenly Jerusalem to, to which we belong with the earthly Jerusalem Judaism, which continues in servitude to the law of Moses. But to the Gentile Christians in Galatia, Paul says this. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. All right. That was a little harder stretch to to hang with me through, but what is it saying? What is Isaiah saying about this group of offspring? Well, Isaiah 54 is predicting an offspring supernaturally born into the kingdom of God and filling the Gentile nations. And the text tells the Israel of God to spread abroad on the basis of these promises. In other words, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Enlarge your tents. In fact, while we're talking about it, we should thank God that our Baptist forefathers understood this from Isaiah 54. You know how God used Isaiah 54 verses 2 through 3? Do you? It was one of the main texts he used to launch the modern missions movement. William Carey, on May 30th, 1792, he used Isaiah 54, 2 through 3, as the text for a sermon. This was at the Northamptonshire Baptist Association at Friar Lane Baptist Chapel in Nottingham, England. His sermon had two points. He said, on the basis of this text, number one, expect great things from God. Number two, attempt great things for God. Because, you see, these are our promises on the basis of what Christ did in Isaiah 53. He died for a people whom he will now call to himself from all the nations and he will gather them in. And we will have to make room, as it were, in the church for all those who will be brought in because of the cross. And that sermon roused the particular Baptists in England and then the rest of the Protestant churches in the West. It roused them to world evangelism. 
And now as a result of how God used that text, we have people... It's not that world evangelism had never happened before that point. But now we have vast multitudes in India, in China, in the islands of the South Pacific, everywhere you can think of, calling on the name of the Lord because of that text. But back to Isaiah. This offspring or seed is not just Israel's offspring. More specifically, it's offspring raised up for the Messiah, the Redeemer, the servant of the Lord. It's his offspring. Isaiah 59, verse 20. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, upon you, the Messiah, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So what God is saying is, from generation to generation, Christ will have an offspring, and they will never lack the Holy Spirit, and they will never lack the Word of God. And all that agrees with the New Testament. Hebrews 2, believers belong to Christ as the children given him by God. Hebrews 2, verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You see, Christ has secured and inherited the blessings of Abraham. And because of that, Christ's children and Abraham's children are one and the same. Galatians 3, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. By the way, if we talk about Christ having children, us being Christ's children, his offspring, that doesn't deny the fact that he is God the Son and God the Father is our Father, right? But remember Isaiah 9, 6. And its titles for the Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is a father. He acts as a father toward his people, as a good king would. All of this ties in beautifully. As I, I warned you, that would be a little hard work there. This all ties in beautifully once you understand this concept of the Messiah having an offspring. Ties in beautifully with our text in Isaiah 53, verse 10. So, the servant of the Lord will die to atone for the sins of his people, but he will live to see these people gathered as his offspring. He'll be an everlasting father to his people. Christ must rise to see generation after generation of his own offspring. And he'll care for them as a father cares for his children. For sake of time, I won't read what I could read. Um, John Calvin 
uh, writes wonderfully on this um, in his commentary on Isaiah 53. But let's also think of the context in ancient Israel where Isaiah is writing this. In ancient Israel, it was dreadful. It was a dreadful thing to be cut off in the prime of life. But it was even worse in people's eyes to die without offspring, without a seed, without heirs. And that's what Isaiah prophesies about this suffering servant of the Lord. He'll die. He'll be cut off out of the land of the living without any offspring to show for it. But this tragic death is immediately followed by immortal life. And so as the Messiah's days are prolonged, he lives to see his seed. In fact, this offspring is the very fruit of his mortal anguish on the cross. This is a seed and offspring of justified transgressors. So we're here today to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was slain for the transgressions he did not commit. But now he lives forevermore and he will see the full reward of his suffering, as many have put it. Revelation 5, starting in the middle of verse 9, addressing Jesus as the Lamb of God. It says, and we'll talk more about this in the afternoon. It says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And don't forget the last verse of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So I will divide him a portion with the many, the many for whom he died. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So Christ will have the portion, the full inheritance of glory and dominion which the Father promised him. He'll completely conquer that old servant, the devil, with the sin and death he brought. And Christ, who delivered over his life as a ransom for many, well, he will share in the glory of this inheritance and the spoils of this war with that multitude of sinners he has redeemed. His victory is theirs. As Psalm 110 put it, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Seeming to indicate that the young men who come to help him in the war they are as numerous as the dewdrops on the ground. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, that never-ending life. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We've preached from Isaiah, I'm sorry, from Psalm 110 before. That would be another sermon. But let's talk in, in conclusion. Don't get too excited. It's not 
a very short conclusion. But let's talk about the reward of Christ's suffering as we try to apply this. The reward of Christ's suffering. Number one, Christ is risen to judge the living and the dead. So bow to him. First aspect of the reward for Christ's suffering that he lives to see now is that God has made him the judge of all people, the living and the dead, when he comes again. As Paul put it in Acts 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This message is not just for those who grew up Christian or who grew up in one particular nation. God calls all people everywhere to repent because, Paul says, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection puts the world on notice. This is not just some Galilean carpenter who got in trouble with the authorities and was killed. This is your judge. What he said of himself was true. And you will face him one way or the other. That's the message for all people. Romans 14, 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. As Christ himself puts it in Revelation 1, he says, I have the keys of death and of Hades because I am alive forevermore. Christ has the power of life and death and judgment over each one of us. John 5, verse 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, this, this Messiah that was prophesied. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a hymn which speaks of this day. It says, See the judge, our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing, then shall say, This God is mine. Gracious Savior, own me in that day as thine. At his call the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? So Christ is risen to judge the living and the dead, and therefore we must bow to him. But second, Christ is risen to raise his people from the dead. So, Christian, hope in him. Christ's resurrection is not a nice myth that we must demythologize and say, well, it's really just about how the spirit of Jesus' teachings lived on after he died and his his followers just loved the memory of him so much, they came up with this beautiful story of resurrection. No! Christ is risen from the dead in the flesh. 
And that is thus the resurrection which is promised to everyone in Jesus. Everyone who belongs to Jesus by faith. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul's concern for this church at Corinth when he's writing this, some are denying the resurrection of the body. And so he says, I hope you didn't believe in vain. This is the message. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And down a ways in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Or Paul says in Romans 8, verses 10 through 11, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And here it is. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If you belong to Jesus, you have his Holy Spirit. And that's the same spirit which raised him from the dead. It's the same spirit that will raise you from the grave one day to everlasting life. And so when you face death one day, unless Jesus returns first, when you face death one day, as a Christian, you have a sure hope that you will be in this body, though it will be reconstituted and better than ever, much more glorious than these feeble things, you will rise in the flesh to live eternally, as if that wouldn't be good enough, to live eternally with the risen Christ, face to face. And as you await that day, when you die, your spirit, as a believer in Christ, will that very day be with Christ in paradise, awaiting the day of resurrection. But without the resurrection of the body, there is no Christian message. That's our hope. So we sing, and we sing in that hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Crown Him the Lord of Life, who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those He came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. And one day, for all Christians, all true believers in Christ, death will die. Number three, and finally, Christ is risen to gather in those purchased by his death. 
He's risen to gather in those he purchased by his death. So work with him. Are you content to just be a Christian yourself? And you figure, well, God will take care of, you know, who believes in Jesus and who doesn't. Are you apathetic about those Jesus came to save? Say, well, at least I'm good now. (laughs) At least I know Jesus now. Is that your spirit? I hope not. You are dear to Jesus if you have believed in him because he died specifically for you. He shed his blood for you specifically, but you aren't the only one. Work with Jesus. Be his fellow laborer to gather in the reward of his suffering. And once people are gathered in to confirm them in the gospel, to help each other in the church remain true to the gospel, Paul said, as he was in a Roman dungeon, apparently, this was not his first imprisonment of house arrest, this was his second imprisonment facing martyrdom. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And then he tells Timothy, his his protege, his his son in the faith, 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I praise God that in our prayer time, our various prayer times, we hear often about many of you speaking to your co-workers, to your family, to people you meet maybe in other ways. And you want to help them with the needs of this life, but more importantly, you want them to know Jesus and his cleansing, saving power. I rejoice in that, and I pray, God, that that will only increase in each of us. I pray you'll be committed to the work of Christ's church. To love the church is to love those who are blood-bought by Jesus. But if you're here, or you see or hear this later, and you don't know Jesus personally, you don't know what it is to have your sins cleansed and forgiven, then we here want you to come to Jesus.
This isn't about a one-time quick decision to check off a box. (laughs) This is about knowing the only one who by his death can rescue you from your sins and their just consequences. But scripture says, anyone who comes to Christ, he will never cast out. You have to understand you are a sinner. You are like a sheep that's gone astray your own way your whole life. You have to understand that your sin is not just a little mistake. It's a violation of God's holy law and character. And you may be used to your sin, but the holy and just God of heaven cannot simply overlook it. Without Christ, you face damnation. You face eternal condemnation and judgment for your sin. But, as I'm sure you know the text from John 3.16, Jesus said that God so loved the world, this wicked world of us sinners, that he gave his only begotten son. He delivered him over to death even, so that whoever believes in his son, Jesus Christ, should not perish, but have eternal life. Maybe if you've been at funerals, you've heard things that make it sound like, well, everyone just naturally dies and then has eternal life in some vague way. But that's not true. Everyone has an immortal soul, which will be either under judgment or blessing forever. And we've said that at Christ's voice, everyone will rise from the dead, but some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of judgment. You need to take Jesus seriously and not just give him a nod on Easter. If you are convinced of your sin, you're convinced that Jesus is the only way to deal with your sin and to be right with God and to have eternal life, Ask him to apply his work on the cross to you. Entrust your soul to him. And he will save you. He'll do it. He's done it for so many of us here. Let's remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, as preached in the gospel. Let's bow to him. Let's hope in him. And let's work with him, because we're still gathering in the full reward of his suffering. Until one day there will be that multitude, countless, and from every tribe and tongue, that ascribe salvation to the risen Lamb. Let's bow in prayer together, shall we? Father, We thank you for these truths. Please convince the hearers of the truths that are from your word, not because somebody stood up and said it and they need to just believe because of who said it. Convince these people that this is your very truth from your very word. Please transform all of us by the truth of Christ who died in atonement for sins and who now lives forevermore to see the reward of his suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.